Oh, what you? What are you saying? Are you checking the TV ad? What's going on, guys? Welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Rink with myself, Kevin Wu, and Mitch Islam. We're super excited to have on this week a four-time national medalist, the 2011 Canadian national champion, and a 2014 Olympic medalist. I think he's now a bag boy on the Women's Tennis Association Tour, but let's welcome in Mr. Dylan Moscovich. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, for, uh, thanks for having me. I'm uh I, yeah, I'm a pretty um, glorified cheerleader, I guess you could call it, slash chir- uh, Sherpa, but, you know. Dylan, good morning. It's uh, your longtime friend, Mitch. Uh, we're excited to have you coming out our stereo this morning. Um, I know there's uh, there's been lots going on in your life uh, post-career the last couple of years, and we're excited to ask you uh, all about those goings on. And uh, like Kevin said, we're, we're super excited to have you on the podcast. I know you got a lot of fans in the figure skating industry that are going to be uh, – excited to hear from you and uh yeah i think this is where we start you um you're with sharon and uh this fantastic tennis player and um we'll ask you a little bit about the engagement in a second but uh you've been doing a lot of traveling with sharon on the wta circuit uh she's a fantastic like i said tennis player and what's that transition been like for you dylan you're you're you know so to speak off the playing field now and and playing the role of supporter what's uh what's that transition been like for you yeah, well, I mean, first off, thanks for having me, guys. Really pumped to uh, to chat with you and Mitch. Lovely to hear your voice as always. Uh, Miss you long time. Miss you uh, long time. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's um, it's been a ride. <laughs> Retirement has been in the two and a half years. It's been a ride. Uh, the, the tennis world is very different, and there are there are some similarities too. Um, but it's warmer. And I really like that. <laughs> uh, I really, I really enjoy. I love tennis. Like I'm obsessed with it. Um, yeah. I love to play. I like. I go to tournaments. Have coaching accreditation. I go on court for practices with my tennis shoes and racket and the whole like <laughs> tennis world. Like kind of knows about it. And thinks it's hilarious and. Um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm like such a keener, you know, like I kind of gauge the practice. If it's an intense practice, I just run around and pick up the balls for everybody. Um, and I, 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 I had kind of nailed down all the coaching stances too. you know, the, the racket under the arm, hugging it in front of you, the sunglasses on, like I've got it down pat. Uh, ever the stands, professional. Stands, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, power stance. I mean, you know, in figure skating, it's all about how you present yourself. So I've just been trying to carry that into other aspects of my life. But, uh, you know, sometimes I they use me as target practice. They'll put me up at the net for some doubles points of them missing someone. And I love it. So for me, it's kind of like just hit it at me as hard as you can. I'm not scared of it. It's fun for me. Just try and take my head off. So Are there any- sometimes you see me running around the court doing stuff. Right. Are there any, uh, any, do they slide in any figure skating jokes? Like, Oh, go grab my ball, Dylan, but, uh, you know, triple style on the way. Uh, yeah. You know, people like to make jokes. I, I make them myself too, but, uh, apparently when I'm running for a ball and if I have to jump for it, my toes point and I'm unaware of it, but, uh, apparently I'm doing like flying jeté as well, trying to hit a backhand, but <laughs> proud of you, Dylan. Um, and what was you, you, uh, what was it about a month ago now you were, you were in New York with, uh, with Sharon for the, um, for the U S open. How was that experience? Uh, it was interesting. It was very interesting. Um, I went last year with her 
in normal times and it was yeah, a little a little different it was a, very different it was like a zoo uh the u.s opens like a, a tennis only olympics you know there's just all these venues in the park and people moving around there's so much energy and um it was almost like serene this time you know it was very peaceful it's a huge facility the grounds are uh vast and sprawling and there's so much going on they had all these games set up and so it was just players and their support staff and then the you know the the tournament and tour staff there um everyone was careful with their masks but it it was very different being you know at these matches with no fans it, it's such a different experience but um it was kind of it was kind of interesting also to see which players thrive off the fans and which ones kind of felt like they were in a groove because they didn't have to deal with the energy um, so as a, you know, a retired athlete looking at it from a, on the other side of the fence perspective, it was pretty fascinating to watch. Are they piping in like music or fan noise or anything like they did with like the NHL bubbles? Uh, in the main stadiums they did. Yeah. Um, some of the, some of the side courts they didn't, but there's like matches going on at all times, you know, like it, and they didn't have in a lot of the courts, they didn't have linesmen, right? So they had a uh, Hawkeye and they had like an automated sound yell out of the speakers. If a call was out, if a ball was out and it, it, it like startles you, it's kind of hilarious. Like the first time you hear it, everyone jumps. It's like, Oh, out of nowhere, right? You don't know where it's coming from. And a couple of times I saw some matches where, you know, the courts are, some of them are close together and, uh, someone like messed up a point because they thought the call was on their court, but it was on another court. So they stopped and the ball was in. Yeah. So it's, right. it's, you know, different, different things to navigate and juggle. And I think you see that right now dealing with a lot of, a lot of the, you know, sports we see on TV, whether it be hockey, football, um, basketball, just the adjustments these athletes are having to make. And I, it's interesting now for, for us because we're, um, you know, retired and, and our peers that are still competing, they're preparing to do just that. They're c- preparing to compete um, in these hollow stadiums. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. What would it be like to, to go out and do a long program in front of, you know, 20 people as opposed to thousands? They're horrible. I mean, <laughs> as, you, as you know, you know, skating a simulation at team camp or doing a show to a dead audience is just, I mean, we're a performance sport, you know, so I right. think you feel it even more. But I, yeah, I've been, I've been thinking about um, the skaters in particular during these times and how hard it must be. I know if I, I, I mean, from a perspective standpoint, if this was happening to me in my post Sochi, you know, my second Olympic attempt, mm-hmm. it would have been really hard, but different. But had it happened to me before my my Sochi uh, run, I would have. Or during my Sochi run, I, I probably would have been losing my mind. You know, it's, right. it's uh, the uncertainty is really hard. Um, luckily, figure skating is a sport where we spend a lot of time prepping and not a lot of time competing. So we're used to that holding period and just training with our, you know, um, keeping our, our head down and just going. But mm-hmm. then again, I mean, it's perspective. The whole world's kind of feeling that way. So, right. It's just, it's just sport. And so let's keep on the the topic of COVID while we're while we're touching on it, Dylan. It's it's obviously been an interesting 2020. Um, everybody's uh, had to deal with a lot of adversity. What what was you know March, April, May, June, July? What did that look like for you? Uh, each month was like its own year. Uh, <laughs> I feel I feel like I've 
morphed into a different person at least three times. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I started out with this kind of like, it, it's interesting because when I, for, I guess for a lot of people too, when I first started hearing about COVID, I was like, it's a flu, you know, I, it'll be fine. Right. Right. And then you, you know, the severity of it started to show itself, the, the, the magnitude to which it would, it would travel and affect our lives. But, mm-hmm. uh, I started out as I normally do with balls of optimism and, you know, mm-hmm. like all these plans and, uh, Sharon was home and, um, at the time we were still in our apartments. And so we were in like a one plus 10, 650 square foot apartment, the two of us. And we're not used to being always together that much. Right. And it was, it was great, but it was also like <laughs> bumping into each other. And you know, we had to like get really creative to like figure out what to do and how to pass our time and not go crazy. And she was right. training. So we had her doing like sprints and uh, ladder drills on the balcony. And like, it, it was, but you know, we were in great spirits and um, mm-hmm. I had all these plans and I was like, you know, wanting to do lots of good things. And I started out that way. And then, I don't know, I, I guess I, I started to use the time to dive a little deeper into myself and um, made some really big discoveries about myself and uh, allowed myself to to feel things more than I normally do. As an athlete, mm-hmm. uh, I always prided myself on being strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, leading up to that, being an acting for the last couple of years is, taught me to open up to the whole spectrum of emotions and experiences that make, you know, the the human experience full. And uh, I started to embrace different parts of me and and started to give it space and time to, to feel those things. And um, sitting there in COVID, I started to realize like, wow, it's okay to feel scared about this and Mm -hmm. to feel down about the world and at the same time, feel hopeful and, uh, believe in the world. So it was, it was a lot of wrestling back and forth, but also a very transformative and valuable time for me and in, in getting to know myself on a deeper level. Very interesting. And, and I, I agree. There was a lot of time for self-reflection and um, now you're going to have to forgive me here. And I'm not being a, a great friend was, was the engagement. Does that happen during COVID? No. Uh, yeah. You're a terrible friend. Um, yeah, the engagement before, actually. Right? <laughs> Yeah, well, you're excommunicated after this interview, but um, <laughs> guess I'm not coming to the wedding. Yeah, yeah, we're coming up. <laughs> we're coming up on uh, two years ago that we got. Is that right? So is that right? Yeah, yeah. My yeah. So, yeah, we're yeah, yeah. We turned into one of those couples that's just engaged forever. But uh, we we had started with a plan to get married in 2021 because Sharon was taking a run at the Tokyo Games, and uh, you know, just it didn't make sense to. To, to have something happen before then. And uh, we started planning the wedding and realized the, uh, the magnitude of the budget. <laughs> and we were like, forget this. Right. Why are we spending all this money on one day? Uh, and so we canceled our, our wedding and started looking at different options. Um, destination, potentially going to South Africa, where my mom's from, my family there, and they have great wedding packages for small weddings. And we're like, oh, we could just turn it into a honeymoon. And then COVID hit and the Olympics got postponed and everything in our lives, both of us just kind of evaporated. Yeah. Um, turned upside down. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, it's, it's challenging and it's a struggle, but like, you know, struggle is essential for growth. And, uh, it, 
it kind of opened things up for us a bit. And so we're kind of, we don't feel this pressure to do it. We're talking about it. We're contemplating different ideas, but all with the knowledge that like, who knows what's going to happen. So it's a, it's a day, it's a ceremony, it's a piece of paper. It's, you know, you're together, you're together. If you're not, you're not. So, Mm -hmm. um, to us, it's more, we're, you know, I think we're grateful that we, we've gotten through COVID as well as we have. And, um, we're just taking it step by step. I think it's so amazing that you're able to have that positivity in a time where a lot of people are just either doubting themselves or getting down on everything around them. Right. But I've always said in, in everything that's going on, there's a positive uh, light on it all. Like for me, you know, having a daughter, I've been able to spend more time with her instead of traveling. And for a lot of people, even skaters or athletes, like being able to train and even take a break from kind of the grind that it was before, you know, so that that's amazing. And, and it, to both of you guys, it is a, it is a piece of paper. It is a day, but, but it's not your day. It's your lady's day. So put that in perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. Every day is my lady. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. That yeah, nothing you're right. Dating teaches you. It's uh, happy wife, happy life, right? Yeah. <laughs> Marriage counseling with Kevin Wu. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. We're taking a turn. I'll send you a test. Yeah. <laughs> and and so I think interestingly, Dylan, the you know, the coming off um, your competitive career a couple of years ago, perhaps COVID is a little bit of a microcosm to, to your overall outlook. Um, I know you've had a lot of things on the go since retiring. You like to keep busy. Um, as you're saying, you're a very optimistic guy. You like, you like hope, you like, um, you know, potential. And um, you've always used those qualities to, to succeed. And, and so what what has retirement been like for you, Dylan? Let's let's jump into it. Um, you know, you've you've come off this incredible career. You're a pair stalwart in in the Canadian scene and on the world scene, um, and then it's over. And and it turns out there is a life after skating, right? And and this is a an adjustment. Uh, lots of elite athletes have to deal with, and some deal with it better than others. What is it? What has it been like for you? What have you done to keep yourself um, on track? How do you? prioritize your days how do you keep your body and mind healthy um what is retirement what has this process been like for you uh non-linear that's the most yep. definite way i can put it yeah uh, you know i it's it's such an interesting it's never exactly how you think it's going to be you know when i look back at my life while i was an athlete and from that lens, what I thought my life would look like and who I thought I was and who I thought I was going to be. I can understand how I would think the things I would, you know, everything was about um, a balance between ambition and and having a life. And I think that's a great way to go about life. But my relationship to ambition was solely from the, the perspective of an athlete, which is like all encompassing. And the great side is that you learn how to achieve, you learn how to endure and to, to, um, you know, push past perceived limits and how to get to a place you want to get to despite the odds. And that's such a gift that sport has given me, but it is also on the flip side because everything's got a yin and a yang. It's also something that can work to your detriment because you are constantly judging yourself and assessing yourself and comparing yourself to, this perceived goal or this notion of what success actually looks like. So for me, that process has been an ongoing evolution. And um, before I retired, I was 
kind of studying some business and entrepreneurship, and I was always kind of interested in acting, but then I put it aside. Um, and then closer to my retirement, I was like, you know what? I, I like, I don't know. I just, wh- why, why not mm-hmm. go for it? Like, what, what have I got to lose? So mm-hmm. uh, I started taking some improv classes before I finished. And then when I finished, I was in a, you know, it was a, it was a very hard ending. It was a very dark place. And um, I kind of threw myself into acting class and just said, this is going to be uncomfortable. Go towards mm-hmm. it. And so I think that was the biggest gift I gave to myself. And um, the evolution of even as my acting experience and skills and understanding grew, I grew and, um, you know, just, just moving towards that acceptance of you are enough because in, in acting, the, the more you try and perceive what it's supposed to look like, the more phony it looks. And so it's all about finding truth in the given circumstances. And the only way to do that is to embrace all of what you are. And so that kind of, that kind of mentality was a bit of a, a bit of a shakeup for me. And, um, I kept going into it thinking like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this in this way. I'm going to be ambitious. I'm going to be, you know, an entrepreneur and all those things are great for the industry. But what I've really started to, as things unfolded for me, what I really started to find was the gifts in just the process and being in process is where it all, all the magic lies, not the outcome, not the finished product, the, the process of not knowing. And I've kind of used that in my life. And so I've, I've discovered that, you know, I, I've embraced the fact that I identify myself as an artist and that took a little bit of time, you know, because there's that stigma of like, well, how are you going to make a living? And like, when are you going to be serious and grow up? But no, I, I, I thrive on creativity and sharing and storytelling. And I've discovered that, you know, I, I don't have to define myself solely with the way I make income. And so it's been a, a very interesting process to like balance the two. And, and I've, I've started like getting more involved with making music just for the fun of it. I've, I've kind of like been teaching myself to DJ. I got some equipment. I've been like relearning the piano a little bit. Um, and that's like just another avenue of expression for me that I find fulfilling. Um, and I have stories to tell that I've had in my head, all these ideas that I've been, I started making a note on my phone when I was retiring of all these like stupid sketch ideas that would pop into my head. Um, and I started, I took a, a screenwriting course. I took two now and, um, started finding homes for these scenarios. And, uh, it's just so fulfilling to like have these stories in your mind that you get to, you get to like put out on paper and then you have to structure and understand how a story works and how to affect people with it and and what what is your message and why and um you know it's such a it's such a great process it's very very challenging like hats off to the people that do this for a living uh Mm -hmm. and have been for many years you know so uh you know with uh, with that i the artistic outlet's been great and then i've had the um you know the luck the the fortune of being able to talk about something I spent my whole life doing. So with broadcasting, you know, doing commentary and then also co-hosting my show with Asher Hill, that figure skating show for CBC. Uh, It's been so great to kind of walk the line between the two worlds and uh, storytell, but also stay connected to 
my first love and uh, most of my life up till now. And that's, uh, you know, it's incredible to hear you talk about this, Dylan, and, and just, you know, the, the transformation as, as you've gotten older, um, just that recognition that, that you are a creator and you, you are, a, um, you know, this kind of intelligent mind that, that loves to share and, and tell stories. It's, it's really cool to see. And, and you're right, you're, you're not lucky, though, the, the, the fortune you have of these gigs with, uh, um, you know, shows like uh, your show with Asher on CBC. Um, this that's happening because um, you're a quality guy that likes to to share, and um, so it's exciting to see. And maybe talk a little bit about that. Uh, what's it like? Um, you know, working with an organization like the Canadian Broadcast Corporation and doing things like Battle of the Blades and your show with Asher. And uh, well, first off, I mean the show's so much fun. You know, like I. Asher I can see I can see you guys have fun doing that show. It's a, it's oh, we a, have a blast. It's a kick, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of fun to shake up the skating world a bit, and I think that was the intention. It all kind of came about because CBC's contract with ISU uh, for broadcasting rights kind of had expired, and they were in negotiations and couldn't come to some sort of settlement for the Grand Prix season, and so they pivoted, and Asher and I had worked for them already, and they were like, you know what, we, we want to appeal to the audience a little differently, and and try this out and so they were like have fun <laughs> we're like are you sure you know what you're doing <laughs> careful uh, what you and, wish for yeah and i'm like this is tbc and they're putting asher and i in a talk show with like no script okay um and so it's been it's been a blast like asher is such a character and he's got so many great insights and he's got such awesome timing and you know it's we we riff off each other well and um it's been such a ride and our our um our producers are so great jackie is phenomenal and karen's amazing and everyone involved has just been so supportive and um collaborative together and uh cbc in general has been very supportive of us and uh, want us to keep going so that's you know so happy about it and it's it's uh it's been really interesting to also see how things come together you know and and what makes things work and what doesn't make them work and and sometimes how delicate that balance is you know it's uh you're appealing to the masses and the masses can sway in different directions and the world constantly changes the skating world constantly changes and there are things happening all the time and it's very interesting to have your pulse on it and look at it from an outsider, but an insider at the same time. Um, so that part's been really fun. And it's definitely different than the acting, uh, like film TV side of things, you know, um, there's, there's very much in both sides, a huge structure involved. There's a huge, huge, huge structure involved. It's like, it's like an army with various levels, uh, of, of, um, responsibilities and hierarchy and, some ways it's incredible how they make things work and in some ways you can see like most hierarchies there's power struggles um Mm -hmm. and some you're often at times left in the dark especially with the acting you know even with auditions do commercial auditions are the worst because like you can walk into a waiting room and there's like i don't know 20 guys that look like you and uh you go and have to do this improv scene that's like completely humiliating and ridiculous and (laughs) You don't get a call back. You just get ghosted. You don't get any feedback. It's just like, you know, you know, they like you, they ask you back and that's it. There's no At least, score. There's no, like you suck because of this. It's just yeah. like, fine, thanks. That's it. 
I was just gonna say, at least in the, in skating, you know what you messed up, and you're being told what you did wrong. Um, that's gotta be that's gotta be a frustrating industry to be involved in. What's uh, let's just touch on battle a little bit. Uh, battle of the Blades, great CBC yeah. show. Yeah. Um, a lot of fun. Um, if, for those of our listeners that don't know, um, CBC started doing the show. Oh, it's been years now, but uh, this is essentially season six. season six. And so essentially, what they do is they pair um uh you know elite figure skaters with um retired elite hockey players from most of them played in the nhl and then of course um now there's they're doing male figure skaters with some female hockey players a lot of fun um what's your role on the show this year dylan yeah it's a great show and i'm uh so excited and grateful to be uh part of it so i i'm a coach on the show um and uh the, the functionality of the show is a little different this year with COVID, like most things in the world. It's, you know, pivoting and trying to find ways around the problem. But uh, as a coach, we I'm, I'm assigned to a team. And so we work in pods and that and we're supposed to kind of be in a, a somewhat of a bubble together with your team. So I'm I'm paired with David Wilson, who's our team's choreographer, which is so much fun because he he choreographed uh, a lot of my programs. And then um we're coaching uh, Akeem Aliu and uh, Vanessa James, who is a longtime competitor of mine, an old friend, and Akeem is just fantastic, such an amazing character. Uh, and we have so much fun. We've been having so much fun with rehearsals. Um, and it's, it's so fascinating to see these hockey players evolve, you know, and, and mm-hmm. to, see, to see the way they see figure skating so differently and just the respect they have for it and also their their keenness you know that an athlete is an athlete and they don't <laughs> athletes do not like to be overcome by things they like to overcome <laughs> them yep. and it's uh it's it's really fascinating to see how people navigate that and uh understanding being in a performative sport where your appearance and the details of your appearance are so important when you've never had to think about it, to me, that's the most interesting part is, is that like awareness that I, I realize how much I appreciate um, how difficult figure skating is. And what we've learned is, is that you have so many things to do well, but then on top of that, you're constantly, whether you're conscious or, or it's in your subconscious, uh, you're, con- you're just constantly, um, you're constantly in process and constantly hyper vigilantly aware of what you're doing and how you're doing it. And so that kind of mentality is, is not that common. I mean, we all, I think, yeah, we all played hockey. Mm -hmm. I played hockey. Um, that's my background, but obviously knowing and getting into figure skating more, that whole side of it, I mean, every little thing matters from your hand movement to your body and your, your emoting. And so that's definitely been, I'm jealous. We don't have it down in the States, but, watching the highlights and seeing what the guys have been going through. I mean, that's so amazing to see that, like you said, the transformation and the journey that these skaters and athletes go on. It's quite incredible. Well, and the Dylan, you nailed it too. Just kind of the respect that is garnered from these hockey players when they, when they get out with, with these um, skating partners on, on the show. And it's like, wow, this is tricky. And I was liking it too. Um, you know, I grew up playing triple A hockey I had early morning practices, 6 a.m. Um, hockey practices. You know, you get there, you do your work, you you crunch, you close your eyes, put your head down, you get through the work, and 
you know, then you go next morning, you have a figure skating, 6.30 in the morning practice. You got to do that same work, but you got to look beautiful while you do it. So there's really that, you know, that contrast between having not only to bring the athletic side, um, but also bring that artistic side, you know, make skating one of the hardest sports in the world. And I think with a show like Battle, <laughs> you really see um, these these NHL hockey players or these top female hockey players to go, wow, this is this is something else to, and, to master. And, yeah, and what a gift for them, you know. I, I, I guess acting's also really illuminated it for me, but what a gift to be able to have an experience where you get to become more comfortable in your own skin than you previously thought. Right. You know, like putting yourself out there in a costume, dancing to music in something that you've never done, cameras in your face, like that seems like for most hockey players their worst nightmare. <laughs> you know? And and for sure. To have to have that gift of being open enough to like go through it and and find something new about yourself on the other side. Like what an incre- incredible experience and and for us as, as the figure skating community, what an incredible experience to be part of that and to see these, you know, incredible, strong athletes go through that. Mm-hmm. Let's transition a bit, Bill. Let's, uh, we've, we started at the end, I guess you could say. Um, how did you start skating? What, what, uh, what got you on the ice as a kid? And, um, you know, maybe talk a little bit about who some of your, your early idols were in, in figure skating and, um, yeah, how did how did Dylan Moskovich get into figure skating? Mm, yes, back in the day. Uh, <laughs> here, here we go. Here, here we go. Comes, here we go. Here comes that actor. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I started the first time I skated. I was 13 months old, uh, wow. and that was just by chance. My mom, my mom's from Cape Town, South Africa, uh, which is one of my favorite places on earth. Um, incredible place, but tangent. Sorry. Uh, so my dad took her skating on an outdoor rink when I was 13 months old and they weren't allowed to bring me on the ice without skates on. Uh, and so they rented the little Bob skates for me and they were carrying me around and I kept wanting to be put down and I just started walking. And so I started walking around the ice and apparently after that, I always was asking to go skate. Like I wanted to skate. And so they take me to, you know, the outdoor public rinks like Harbor fronts and, uh, I would cry because I was cold and then my mom would take me inside and I'd try to go back out. And uh, <laughs> I guess someone was there and saw what was happening. I was probably annoyed by my crying and said, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a, there's a public rink down, uh, down the road and um, it's indoors. And so my mom took me to McCormick arena in Parkdale, uh, the <laughs> West Toronto skating club. And yeah. my first coach, Donna Ijima saw me yeah. skating around. I was two and a half almost three actually. And she came over to my mom and said, he's pretty good. Can I give him a lesson? And that's how my skating career started. <laughs> the rest is history, right? Prodigal son from day one. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, I haven't. We talked like a super late bloomer prodigal son. I don't know. <laughs> the prodigal son. Well, no, but it's funny because we, we've talked to lots of people in, you know, skating world's a small place. We all know lots about each other. I haven't heard of anyone being on the ice at 13 months. That's pretty incredible. Um, so what, when, when did you kind of realize, cause this is the other interesting thing we talked to, you know, people that have gone far in the sport and there's always that time in your life, you're younger and you start to realize you're pretty damn good at this. When was that for you? And, and what was that process like? And did that sort of, I know personally for me, when, when I was going through that process, 
I really started to like skating more. It was it was one of those things where it's just kind of the guy I am. If I'm if I'm good at something, I like it. And so what what when was that for you and and how did that process kind of contribute to how you push forward in your career? I mean, my mom told me when I was 5 she asked if I wanted to go to the Olympics. I said, "No, I want to win the Olympics." Uh, <laughs> I have like vague memories of of what skating was back then and I was pretty terrible in my opinion, but um I've seen videos and you know <laughs> one thing I'll get, I could say is I was pretty persistent like I think I tried I, there's a video of me at like nine or ten just like trying these really bad triple sows but I just would not stop like a for effort half turn cheat like just eating it and I would just get up do it again do it again do it again I I don't know I think I think pretty young I remember I think maybe even like eight nine I remember like identifying as a figure skater i played rep hockey rep baseball soccer um you know i played other i played some musical instruments growing up um but i i think i just knew that skating was my thing and uh you know i grew up idolizing kurt and elvis and we had some amazing canadian i mean we've always had great canadian skaters but we had like a whole whole iconic generation then to to look up to and um i think that was a huge component of what drew me to go further in the sport and also i think i'm just you know i'm stubborn and skating skating is a sport that is such a slow it's such a slow learning curve like the acquisition of new skills for most people um takes a long time unless you're like a a pre-team russian girl it's it's a really (laughs) It takes a really long time to get new things. And um, yeah. I think that that challenge was something that drove me. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that that is a huge component of it. I also loved, I think before I even understood it, I loved that I could be performing and dancing to music and be like a hardcore technician athlete where I push myself. Right. Very interesting. And then, so You'll have to forgive me. I didn't do. I never do my homework as well as Kevin does before these podcasts. But when was it exactly? <laughs> and there's the groan. When was it that you started uh, skating with Kira, your sister? And and you know, for for some skating fans that uh, maybe are outside the country of Canada, um, they might not know that you had you know this long sort of illustrious career um, with Kira and and a lot of success. And when when did you guys start skating together? And maybe talk a little bit about uh, you know the the experience skating with someone you're related to and what kind of challenges that presented and um, talk a little bit about the success that you guys had. Uh, yeah. So I started skating with Kira when we're nine years apart. I'm I'm the oldest of four and she's the youngest of four. And uh, we were both, all four of us skated at one point, but um, we were the only two left skating and we were at the cricket club um, with the Wurzes. And this was uh, 2013 so she was nine and I was 18. Um, 20, 2013? You're going to have to check your math on sorry, that. Sorry, 2003, 2003. There you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just didn't want to show my age. Uh, <laughs> feels like it was yesterday. Um, yeah, we, we at the time, like there were maybe six or seven senior pairs there. So there were, it was a big pair of school and single school. Um, and Kira was like was quite tall and strong for her age. She was also a, a provincial level uh, gymnast and she was very good. Like she was very advanced for a young age. And so um, we were on the ice and as a joke, I was like, Kira, let's do like a round of stroking. 
to make the coaches laugh because like it's absurd. I'm 18 and she's nine, you know. Yeah. Um, and we did a round of stroking, and they were like, "That looks good. Do it again." And uh, <laughs> this was in like June, and I think by late June we had programs. <laughs> and uh, six months later, we won three novice nationals, and I was like, "Oh, weird. Okay, weird." Uh, weird. And so I did. I did a few years of uh, a couple of years of both singles and pairs, and then after my first year as a senior man, and we had won uh, novice pairs, I kind of realized I, I, you know, I had uh, the illustrious Patrick Chan uh, coming up the ranks, and I was like, I've known him since he's four. I do not want him to whoop my butt. <laughs> uh, but I, I realized, pair. yeah, 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 is, But I, I kind of had this. For one of the first times in my life, this this uh, understanding of passive least resistance and um, singles, I was I was decent, you know, I was good. I, I came second in junior men at nationals, and I I did okay. I got a uh, one international medal um, in Slovenia, but like the triple axle was not really happening. The quads were like, eh, you know, and mm-hmm. pairs was just kind of coming to me very naturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were seeing success granted these were the younger levels, but it kind of just seemed to present itself to me almost like the universe was like, this is where you belong. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, being an older brother, I think I took to that role very naturally. Uh, and, um, I decided to kind of like change my body and change everything. And, uh, I just kind of jumped all in with the pairs and then, um, Kira and I ended up skating together for six years, but she, uh, we we're the nine years apart made us uh, ineligible for any international competitions up until like our last competition. Um, right. she grew to be five foot seven and she developed severe scoliosis. And so her back was really bothering her. And, uh, the guys would joke that when we did lifts, her toes were dragging on the ice, you know, like it was, it was like, we were good. We did, we did some good stuff, but it was the way pairs was evolving with the, you know, the change in the marking system as well. Um, and the emphasis on difficulty and lift, it just kind of was like the writing was on the wall that I needed to progress. And Kira's health was not allowing her to skate comfortably. So, um, she stopped, she retired at the ripe age of 15 <laughs> and on the senior national team, uh, and moved on with her life. And then my career kind of took a different turn from there. Yeah. And so that was, uh, right around, 08, 09, and um, beginning of 09, you partner with uh, Kirsten Moore Towers, who most of our listeners will know um, today. Um, talk a little bit about that transition, Dylan. You've skated, you know, you skated with your sister, which obviously presents um, different challenges. And now you're training with someone new, someone you're not related to. Um, and things click pretty quickly, if, if you ask me. And so talk about the the quick rise to the top and, and just that transition of, um, of training now with Kirsten Moore Towers. Yeah. So I, I ended up doing, I think like 11 or 12 tryouts. <laughs> I'd never, I'd only ever skated with my sister and I was like, well, I wonder what, you know, the pair world looks like out there. So yeah. Kirsten, Kirsten was skating with Drew, uh, Andrew Evans, and, um, it was her first year pair as they were junior. Uh, we were training in the same school and she was like really close friends with Kira. So I knew her really well. I would drive them to school together and whatnot. Um, and so I, I did a bunch of tryouts. Um, and then Kirsten and Andrew ended up splitting and, um, 
And so, uh, seeing as I hadn't settled on a partner yet and Kirsten was in the school, um, and, and, you know, with a ton of potential and a great size for pairs, uh, I was like, yeah, let's do this tryout. And it kind of, you're right. It kind of just clicked. Um, you know, she was new to pairs only having done it for seven months. And so there was definitely a learning curve, but, um, you know, she's like, she's very naturally gifted and, uh, she's a spitfire. She's got a lot of, a lot of, um, energy and power. And, uh, I would say our first year was kind of like me chasing a puppy around a park. Like she just, she just skates so fast out of everything, you know, like that, that like pair awareness that you develop. Like that was like what our first year was just like clean skate and rough around the edges was kind of like how we got into right. it. But we, right. we learned to skate clean together very quickly, which I think really paid off for us throughout our partnership. Um, and uh, our first year together, we ended up on the national team and went to my first four continents and it was uh pretty awesome it was an olympic year vancouver year and yeah obviously we were gunning for it like everyone but we had two spots and some incredible teams at the top so it was kind of like a a pipe dream um but it, it, there was a you know a, a changing of the guard after after that season and and moving forward there was uh a new a new kind of opportunity in the pair world in canada and um Kirsten and I seized that. We had a great follow-up season, meddling at both our Grand Prix, ended up mm-hmm. replace, being the fill-ins for Jess and Bryce after uh, Bryce Davison had his, uh, a massive knee surgery. And it was kind of fitting, you know, like my best friend. And I went to visit him on the, at the hospital on the way to the competition. It was Skate Canada. Mm-hmm. We drove to Kingston. And um, and that kind of launched our, our career. We medaled at the next one, went to the final, and then we ended up winning nationals. And that was like a, a pretty awesome for a second season and kind of breakthrough season for us. And after that, skating and the world was very different. Yeah. You know, once you get that taste of, of success, it, it kind of changes things for you. For sure. And what was what was that like, Dylan? I mean, you're you're less than two years together and you're Canadian national champion, your best um Megan and Eric at that national championships uh, make your world debut like you said what what is that what did that mean to you that you know I don't want to say quick success you you worked a long time um from a young age to to be the best skater you could be but that's quick like what kind of what kind of uh does that go to your head a little bit or, or how did you how did you handle that and or was it more of a you know this is this is absolutely where I'm meant to be. I have, you know, the most confidence I could ever have here to carry forward. Um, what was that like? Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it got to my head. Um, I always, you know, I always tried my best to make sure that my feet were on the ground and I was very grateful for whatever success I had and, and understood, you know, that like at any given time, anything can happen and there is a component of luck. And, uh, you know, you work hard to prepare and then you, you let it go and live in the moment and whatever happens, happens. So I think that that mentality really helped me handle the ups and the downs. Um, but obviously when you get a taste of winning, you realize on the other side is a whole new set of challenges, which is defending and dealing with those expectations. And, um, you know, that, that feeling of winning was winning nationals was, it was like a, like a, a dream realized, you know, if you can mm-hmm. kind of put that into words, I guess that's the best way to put it is it was a dream that I had my entire life 
of being a senior Canadian champion um, realized. And it was, it was amazing. And it was also amazing because Kirsten was still so fresh, you know, and it was so awesome to see her, see us come together and, and work like I'm eight years older than her and she was still a teenager. I taught her to drive and, you know, we had a really great, we had a really great friendship. Um, and it was, it made it that much more special. Uh, and then that next year was very, actually quite challenging for us because I think, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of athletes go through imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. at some point in their career. And I think at that time with the changing of the guard and being the new team that kind of happens to be there when it changes, there can be that feeling of like, well, am I just here because no one else was? Um, and then now there's expectation. Uh, and I think that haunted us a bit that first year. I, I, I think that's something that we struggled to fully overcome. And we ended up at nationals with a, you know, a very disastrous, like just disastrous long program. Yeah. And, a pretty, uh, a pretty, uh, you know, I don't want to say memorable, but the the fall in the oh, definitely memorable. Right? That's that's something you never forget. That yeah, that, uh, yeah, that was terrible. It was just terrible. But you're uh, right. There's, we, there's a different there's a different pressure, right? Coming in that season with you know you're defending the, the Canadian title. You got Megan and Eric who are really picking up steam, and yeah, would you say maybe the pressure got to you a little bit? Um, yeah, and the the interesting thing is is the fragility of a moment on the mm-hmm. ice is everything, mm-hmm. you know, a split second can change everything you've worked for. And the key is being able to be aware of that, but not dwell on it. And I think the second you start like being aware of it and putting energy towards it, you start skating like you are walking on eggshells. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the fear of failure is a crippling feeling. And uh, I, I think, you know, as a team, we were dealing with that. I, I could feel that Kirsten was struggling with that. Um, and uh, that became, a, you know, something that, that unfortunately we didn't overcome at that time. But right. things happen the way they're supposed to or the way they do, and you, you pivot um, and deal with it. And I think, well, and you, you know, missing – Yeah, we did pivot. But we missed the, we missed the world team and the four continents team and right. went from – this like amazing breakout season to sitting at home, um, you know, and watching everything. And I think that like really one of the things that stood out to me the most that I remember, um, I went for a run the, the day I got home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just decided like, okay, I had my day or two to feel sorry for myself, which is now I understand in some ways an important process, but, now it's time to like you know do something with that uh and i remember i remember making a facebook post 364 days till retribution <laughs> like <laughs> classic young ambitious dylan like yeah let's beat the odds you know and 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 that kind of like set me set my compass in the right direction and and that next season was uh it was it was retribution for us it was it was a um we we struggled through a lot of things it was a hard a hard season, but the, you know, the fruits of our labor were big. We had a really great season result wise and grew a lot as a team and really grew, I think in all aspects of our skating. Um, we took that extra time having not competed at four continents of worlds to work on 
some of the intricacies, and I think that's where we made our biggest strides. Absolutely, and I actually, if you ask me, I I actually, I remember that season just noticing exactly that. Wow, these guys are working those intricacies. They are looking world-class in all facets possible, and and you're right. Like like we said, we, you, you pivoted. You got your Grand Prix final berth back. You're second at the national championships, four common silver medal. Um, you go into London at a home world. You come fourth. Like this is these are incredible stats. Um, and and you, I, I was I would expect you carry some of that momentum and energy into the 13, 14 season, which, as we know, was was a huge success for you guys. You. Um, you know, your second at nationals, you qualify for, for the Olympic team. Um, you go into Sochi, you win that silver medal in the team event. You place fifth in, in the pair event. Like, again, incredible statistics here, Dylan. Um, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about that 14 season. The, the weight maybe, and, and you can tell me, but just the weight off your shoulders of qualifying for the Olympics and then going in there and, and tearing it up. Um, for lack of a better phrase, um, talk about that. What was that experience like for you, um, the Sochi Games and, and the lead-up to it, the, the qualification? You know, it, it was interesting because we had had, you know, our second season was that big breakthrough, but I felt like the 12-13 season was a real big breakthrough. Um, you know, all of a sudden we weren't just like new kids who happened to like fall upon some good results. Like, we, like you said, we came forth at Worlds and kind of, almost hit the podium like a couple points off and we kind of asserted ourselves as we're here. You um, Yeah. And that, and that kind of gives you a bit of a different feeling. Um, you know, the, the state of Canadian pairs was super strong. Eric and Megan was third, just ahead of us at worlds. And we're really like rallying off each other. Um, going into that Olympic season, we had a couple hiccups. Like we, <laughs> we ended up getting, having to redo both programs, like completely new ideas. We went back to a short program, got a brand new long program and we had to go back to Vancouver to do. And while we were in Vancouver doing it, I had food poisoning. It was like a whole, this was in June. It was like a whole thing. Um, whole thing. Yeah. I forget about it sometimes. It's like, yeah, what a great season. It's like, holy smokes. That was pretty terrible at times. But, I guess the lessons I learned from the previous season and the bad one before that, the, the, sorry, the struggle before that, um, what I learned really helped me mature to a point where I was ready to go into the season as a veteran, even though it was my first Olympics that I inevitably would go to. And I, I felt like I carried a lot more wisdom an understanding of what to expect and what I might feel like. And I prepared myself for that. You know, I, uh, I, I really took mental, mental health and mental training very seriously throughout my career. Um, I, I did Kung Fu for a number of years and that really set me on the path of understanding mental performance and the brain and the mind and the connection between the two. And, uh, and I, I was also working with, um, we were working with a sports psychologist who um, did biofeedback. So, uh, you know, more of a, a physical biological approach to the brain and how it behaves under stress. And uh, I, I prepared myself. I trained my, I was always hard, you know, I always trained hard physically, but I was like, I just took it to another level. I was, 
I think probably the in the best like fitness shape I'd ever been in going to those games. Um, yeah. And I just I decided what attitude I was going to have and what experience I was going to have regardless of the details. And I think that carried me through because I got to the games and I ended up having athlete's foot in both feet in between my, my baby toe and the, and the, and the fourth toe. And it was right. so bad. I couldn't put my, my feet into my skates. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. It felt like yeah, I remember like that a, a burning pebble in between my toes and it turned into an abscess that was infected. And I got, ended up having freezing like big needles of, of freezing agents injected into my feet every single day so I could practice. And, um, and then because I was doing that, my feet started getting bruises. So that I like, as the freezing would wear off, as I was walking through the, the Olympic park, I would start to be aware of all of a sudden, like the bottom of my feet were all beat up. Um, and it was, it was really, really painful and uncomfortable. And I, I, uh, I don't know. I kind of just said like, okay, well, to Dr. Marty, I was like, well, cut the baby toes off if you need to like it, <laughs> you know, I'm going on the ice and I'm going to enjoy myself. And I remember, I remember this like distinct moment when we got to the games and we got our kits. It was like, you know, Frodo arriving in, in Mordor, like that journey of like that length of journey. It was like, holy shit, I'm finally here, you know, and I, I put on my, my outfit and I went for a run through the Olympic Village and I just was like basking in this, you know, this is it. This is like where I belong. I've never felt like I belonged somewhere so much at that point in my life. And um, I watched oh, a lot. Li- you're living your five-year-old self's yeah, dream. Yeah, right? yeah. Your five-year-old self's and I dream. It's incredible. so lucky to like be vividly aware of that. Like it was so visceral. Um, and then, and then I, I, you know, I saw a lot of athletes wearing the weight of the Olympics. And when you allow yourself to really think about what the Olympics is, it's insanity why we put ourselves through this. Like an entire lifetime, every four years, this just nuttiness that anything could happen if you hit a rut. It's all, it's all gone. You yeah. know? And uh, I just was like, that's not going to be me. I'm going to just, I'm ready to do this and I'm going to like live this. And I did. And I think it was, uh, I can probably attribute it to one of the biggest reasons why we had, or at least my skating side of things, why I had such a, a freedom to my skating was because I, I just decided that that's what I was going to do. And I almost meditated on it every single day that that was the athlete I wanted to be. That's how I wanted to feel. That's how I wanted to look. And, uh, I stuck to it. And that attitude and that outlook puts you on a short list with some of the most incredible athletes who have ever walked the earth. You're an Olympic medalist, Dylan. Can you explain that yeah. to us? Can, can, can you, can you help us understand Kevin and I here, the weight of that? What, what does it mean to you to be, you know, an Olympic medalist? Do you want my perspective from then or from now? <laughs> How about they're different. How about they're both? different. All right. I'll yeah, take you back sure. to them. How does it, how does it change? Yeah, well, I'll take you to them. Yeah. So, and the interesting thing is the team event was brand new, right? So no one knew what to expect. I, Canada knew we had, we were in the running for a medal and like, uh, you know, having the, the fortune of being named to that team and having a chance to, to take part in it, you know, very grateful. Um, it was, it was like, <laughs> it was like a rom-com, you know, you, the, the, you're like with your, 
Eric and I, like, best friends since we were 17, arch rivals, neck and neck, like, at each other's throat on the ice all the time, finally got to be teammates, fully teammates. <laughs> and we stood side by side on the podium, and it was just this, it was just this, like, wow. You know, I, it was the, normally the, the medal ceremony for skating takes place and it took place previous to that in the, in the arena, but they had it in the Olympic park with the, you know, the Olympic cauldron in the background, it was raining, but it didn't matter. My parents were standing there front row. It was kind of like it was written into a story, you know? And I just remember thinking like, savor this moment, savor this moment, savor this moment. Like don't for a second, let this fly by. Um, And I, and it was just, it was so incredible. And, but it was also hard balancing that because I had to compete two days later. Um, you know, so it was, I, I really let myself bask in it, especially after I was done competing. I really felt this, like this sense of pride. I was connected to something so much bigger than myself. I represented my country and I was so proud of that. And, you know, bringing a medal home, you know, for like 20 minutes, everyone knew me and, uh, then of course the limelight dies and you're back to being a normal person. <laughs> no one knows figure skaters and whatever, but they love you. Patrick Chan or Tessa Scott. Yeah, yeah, I know who they are. <laughs> I uh, was good. I was good too. Yeah, no, which is like fine. Like I, I don't, you know, especially no. now in hindsight, like it doesn't. You're like you're dust in the wind. It's it's not what it's about. If if you live for that, you will be you will be living the life of sadness because it will never live up and make, it will never live up to what you think it is. And it will never make you feel and stay that way, the way you want it to. It just, it's, it's a mirage. It's a mirage. It's all a mirage. The journey is what is the most fulfilling part. Um, so how did that change, Dylan? What's, what's your outlook now? It's like, I love what the metal represents. But like honestly, it's it's a it's a beautifully designed chunk of metal on a ribbon, and uh, it represents this incredible journey that I embarked on, and like so many important people in my life shared with me, and that to me is one of the the biggest things uh, about it is the amount of people that got to share in that in that uh, joy, you know, because of the the struggle. I mean if you're an athlete, you're going through tough times and your family is going to ride through it. Like being an athlete is a very selfish mentality and it has to be. And, you know, hats off to the support, the support staff and family and friends of athletes out there, because it's not easy. Like we're all over the place sometimes. And it's, it's, uh, it's hard. And I, I just looking back, it's like, wow, I, I tied my whole identity around this ideal with so little, with so little proof that it would happen. It's like insanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I dedicated my entire life to this ideal with no horizon afterwards. And my entire self-worth and identity and being hinged on this event. And that is something that I really, I really see differently now. You know, there's it's such a beautiful thing, and um, it's gonna sound weird, but I, like I, I really have dived further into meditation. I did an inner child meditation the other day, where you, you, you go and you sit with 
the child you and you can you have a, a conversation with a a young you and i had uh i had a conversation with my nine year old self um in this meditation and i like i just wept because i got to i got to re feel what that hope and dream felt like because on the other side of it you realize like it is never what you think it is. It's the journey. It's the the lessons. It's the people. It's the experience that make it so full and colorful. The the destination is like, you know, the period at the end of a sentence. It's it's so beautiful, but it's only beautiful because of everything you went through. If it was easy, it would be boring. It wouldn't mean anything. Um, looking back on it now, I, I have so much pride in it, but I think I have more pride in the fact that I'm not still in it. You know, I'm not still living that. I'm, I'm, I'm embracing the subtleties of life and finding that there's so much more meaning in just being alive and just being than trying to prove yourself worth through some external goal that doesn't really sustain joy. It just gives you experiences. Really interesting to hear the, that insight, Dylan. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll transition. We'll move on from, from Sochi, but. Um, I, I, I do want to tell the listeners probably my, my favorite, one of my favorite memories from Sochi was, um, you know, finishing competing and oh our, night, our nightly trips to McDonald's. Um, oh, I man. think I remember a particular night, Dylan, where you ate about 10 chicken nuggets and I think your eyes were closed the entire time. <laughs> oh yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, we had our, how, how, had our how exhausted are we though at the end of that? Right. Oh God, they're like the depletion is just <laughs> insane. It's not even just the physical, it's like the emotional stimulation is wild. And then afterwards you're you're going to events, you're cheering for your friends, you're like stimulated, you're going to parties, you're with everybody, it's interviews on two hours sleep, it's nonstop, you know? Yeah. And yeah, that was and that night was you know, probably arguably my favorite night of the game. Just <laughs> living it up with some of my favorite people who I've known since we were, you know, children. And, yeah. uh, like what a, what a, a moment to look back on and go like, wow, we were, you know, at nationals and pre novice running around the hotel together and then sharing Olympic experiences together. It's pretty insane. I think you, I'm not sure our maturity le- level was any different though. <laughs> you got to talk about that a little I bit. You, uh, <laughs> sorry, you, you grew up with your competitor that you, yeah, I mean, you mentioned it earlier with Eric Radford and um, always being, I, I guess, at the top, right, with each other, battling it out, and you're standing there in the Olympic uh, venue together. I mean, how, how was that growing up together? Like, how did you guys separate kind of work, I guess, work and play, right, and maintaining a friendship? Because you see so many competitors almost fizzle out in that friendship because yeah, you guys it's were hard. both at the it top. It was hard, it was, and it wasn't always teachy team you know um we handle things differently uh eric eric will admit to this too so i have no problem saying it but he handles losses way worse than i do uh <laughs> eric no yeah oh yeah he can't even lose a card game without being really upset but he and like honestly luckily for our friendship he won more than i did but uh, <laughs> It was, yeah, it was, it was like a a conscious choice every single time that like on the ice is on the ice. Friendship is forever. This is not. And 
uh, it's just, you know, forks in the road and challenges either make you or break you. And I think our friendship in a lot of ways was, it was made more and more because of those things. Um, you know, we've, we've been friends since we were 16. And so like, you know, half our lives basically, uh, and changed and gone through a lot together, uh, life stuff, skating stuff. Um, and you know, when we go through things now that, that bonding that happens is exceptionally strong. You know, that, that ability to turn to someone who you have been through some of your highest highs and lowest lows with, and just know that like they get it and they've been there with you and you know that they've been there with you. So you can rely on them. You know, it's, it's, you have, you, I had little moments of the games, you know, like with you, Mitch and, and Poge and Eric and Chitty and Patrick, sorry, his nickname, Chitty, P. Chitty. Uh, <laughs> you just kind of go like, wow, like what a, what a beautiful thing. The bond is tighter because of the shared experiences, right? You're, I think you're absolutely right about that. And, um, yeah. it's something and the you, brothers, you know, it's like, you're yeah, exactly. Battle together. Yeah, exactly. So before we finish Dylan with, uh, just asking a little bit about what's next for you. Um, just want to quickly touch on y- your partnership with Lubov. Um, things ended in, in 2014 after, um, your Olympic season, uh, with Kirsten, um, you partner up with, with Luba. Um, you guys have, you know, to be frank, a, a great partnership, um, three world championships, um, three national medals. Um, like again, the statistics are, are incredible. Um, your big goal is, is to go to that second games, right? That 2018 games in Pyeongchang. Um, and you don't quite do it. You fall a little bit short. Um, I know there was a pretty serious injury that took place, um, about a month and a half or so before the national championships that year, which is of course the qualifying event, um, for that Olympics. Um, hate to take it dark again, but maybe talk a little bit about, um, just that 2017, 18 season. And, and, and like I said, just falling short of that Olympic roster. What did that, what did that do to you? And, and how did you deal with that? And how did you um, decide after that, that uh, it was time to hang him up? Yeah, that was, uh, that was, you know, it was almost like a second or eighth <laughs> saving life for me, that, that, Daniel, <laughs> that partnership. Um, I, w- I was unsure what to do after my partnership with Kirsten ended. So I, you know, I was, I was 29, going to be 30 that year starting again with a new partner at that point And at that level, it's like the odds are exceptionally against me. So I was lucky enough to find Luba. And as you know, cause you witnessed it, we did a tryout in Detroit and, yeah. um, and then kind of just canceled our flight home. And that was it. We started skating together yeah. uh, with the goal of 2018 and our, and our partnership was, had a lot of greats, but it was also a bit of a tumultuous roller coaster. And in some ways I think, like I said, how the metal, you know, it, it will never sustain that joy. Once you've, once you've cracked, you know, they say never meet your heroes. Like once you've gone, the mystical side of everything is gone. You know, that first Olympics, you can't replace it. It's done. Um, and so as someone now in my 30s skating, skating was very different. Mm-hmm. My body hurt more in different ways. Uh, my understanding of skating grew. 
Uh, I think I had less patience in some ways, um, which was something I struggled with. Uh, and then, you know, we, we kind of like started really gaining some steam the year prior to the Olympic season. We finished six of that worlds and actually even finished ahead of Eric and Megan, um, mm-hmm. which was like a big thing for us. And then for going sure. into the Olympic season, we were set up well. Uh, we started out a little rough, which we often did. Uh, Luma and I, our seasons usually kind of picked up on the second half. But uh, yeah, about three weeks before nationals, I had a pretty severe accident off the ice, um, which, uh, you know, a, a, a door fell on my head while I was lying down a 200 pound door. So uh, the mirror, it was a mirror door, it shattered, it cut my, my face open, it cut my hand open, I got stitches in my hand, cracked, cracked or bruised a bone in my hand. Um, and then I uh, ended up with a pretty bad concussion. And it was, it was pretty scary, you know. Uh, didn't know what was going on. And, uh, as a true athlete, I tried to will myself through it. Um, and it was my last go, you know, and the immigration minister of Canada had just personally signed Luba's document like a week or two before she became a Canadian citizen. And, uh, so we were sitting there with like, uh, this four year battle of getting her citizenship and trying to get, it finally came together. And then this, Mm -hmm the universe threw something at me literally. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, we competed at nationals and, uh, it turned, I was cleared to skate, but it turns out I was still concussed. Um, and it was, it was, it was defining. It was defining. It was, it was one of those moments on the opposite end of the spectrum that kind of makes or breaks you. And it defined me in a lot of ways and it defined how I would approach life moving forward. And in many ways, it, it kind of shattered my relationship. It was one of the things that shattered my relationship with skating at first. Like I, uh, I struggled to go into arenas without feeling dread or or bitterness. You know, it was it was hard. Um, to this day, I work through some of it. Sometimes it'll just kind of sneak up on me, uh, and it it gave me a, another hard lesson. You know, like I I chose kind of like I chose at, at twenty. 11 sorry 2012 nationals after that disaster i kind of chose like the high road and hold myself um what kind of person do i want to be like how do i want this to shape me and so you know i i watched the games i supported my friends and uh i i was as much as i already knew but i was even more so taught that it is having a dream like that is so fragile and uh there is luck there's timing and there are other people who want it too. And your loss can equal their dream come true. And that's part of how it works. And, uh, you know, being part of it is a gift. And so I, I really try to focus on that and try and make that a reality for myself. And at the same time, learn to mourn properly because it's something I never did well. Uh, I always, you know, suppressed, negative emotions because they didn't serve me well as an athlete. And I've really learned that they will always come back because they're trying to teach you something. So if you don't want to deal with it, you will have to eventually, and it will just fester into something worse the longer you put it off. But dealing with trauma is part of life. And uh, I think it, it really gave me a gift in the sense that it taught me to do that. And I think also it helped me move forward out of skating. Like I don't know if I would have been able to, sever my identity from the sport as easily had it not gone that way. 
I don't know. Mm. You know, it's, a, yeah. it's like an alternate reality that doesn't exist. So right. Very, uh, very. Sorry, Dylan. Just was going to say it's very interesting, and it's it's incredible to hear you talk about it with such you know sort of a mature um, mature outlook on the whole thing. Because I I know personally how how much of a struggle that was for you, and um, you know anybody can understand the the disappointment someone would feel. Um, you know, falling short of that that big goal of the Olympics. Um, in your case, the second time around. So, again, like the the outlook is incredible, and I think the person you are has very much been shaped by your career. And you know, the good parts and the bad parts, as we know, the the lessons we learn in skating are are we take with us um, through life. So, um, I want to ask you a little bit about. Uh, you know, we'll finish up here shortly, Dylan. But let's talk a little bit about Buddha. Um, we've been talking lately of about life and i think the last time or a couple of times ago we were chatting um you were telling me a little bit about buddhism and, and how you're sort of studying it and um i think too you mentioned uh was it costa rica was in the plans maybe for you and sure yeah. some time out there was that was that, that pre covid dylan you, you had to stay straight yeah it was more that was more <laughs> during COVID. <so. laughs> get me out of this box in the sky i want to be around that's the escape. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, I like I'm kind of exploring. Um I've I've been on a journey of evolution and healing ever since that accident and it's been a process and art has been an an invaluable um component and uh you know, member of that journey and meditation has kind of come back into my life and, and I've always been like kind of a philosophical person. And, uh, I've just kind of, I guess, been connecting a little more to spirituality and during COVID sitting with stillness and learning to sit with stillness. I I've learned how much I distract myself from myself with stimulation. I love people. I love being around people. And I realized how much I use that to avoid sitting with discomfort. And, uh, I don't like, not being good at something or I don't like having something that controls me. Uh, and so I, I kind of took it upon myself to use the time to, to explore that and evolve, um, to a deeper, you know, connection with who I am and who we all are as living beings and what that even means. And I, I wouldn't say I'm a Buddhist and definitely not in the religious sense. It's more so I'm very fascinated with, uh, spirituality and and um, and different philosophies on life and and the mind and the connection that we have to life and what it all means you know like what is this all for um, and so I've, I've been kind of diving deeper into that and I think also with COVID uh, even before COVID like my fiance Sharon's um, a vegan and she's been plant-based for a number of years she was predominantly for a long time and I kind of started cutting back. I grew up a vegetarian and uh, started eating meat because I was told I needed it to put on size and uh, um, which in actuality is kind of bullshit, but um, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, the, it, the education wasn't there. Um, and I, I started moving towards it and feeling healthier and then, she started just investigating more into into the industry, the animal agriculture industry, and you know, I I had this realization, you know, if I'm if I'm doing all this work to make myself a more awakened person, I guess you could say, to to make myself more aware of the world around me and my 
cause and, and experience of my cause and effect and my experience of it all, watching the suffering in the industry, not just the health, not just like, you know, the climate effect, which is enormous and a whole other podcast we could talk about because I will just ramble for days. But, Let's go. Um, a fellow vegetarian I, over I, here. So yeah, yeah, right. Kevin's like, yeah, yeah we're right. here. Here's the paper. You got to sign it now. You said it. Okay. Episode two, we'll do it. Um, Go on. Yeah. I I just, I decided, you know what? Like I'm done with this, like fear of the stig, stig, the stigmatic view of the title vegan. I was like, I don't care anymore. You know, to me, it just, it felt like in my gut, my soul, it's the right thing to do because, you know, philosophically that, you know, we eat meat and it's part of nature and all these things, but like humanity has completely taken over the earth and through entitlement and greed, we have decided that everything belongs to us. And we have, you know, developed domain over animals' lives and bodies and their existence. And we like forced and pregnant animals to exploit them for whatever we need without any second thoughts. And the whole process was completely removed from the general public's knowledge. And it is very like unsettling and scary to look at. So people don't myself included before once I allowed myself to really go there and feel empathy and really feel my humanity towards the situation. I realized, you know what, this this isn't in the line with who I am anymore. Um, I'm going to stop eating meat and dairy and, above that I'm going to advocate because they don't have a voice and they need help and the world needs help. And, uh, you know, it seems like I'm a hippie, but like, I'm fine. <laughs> with um, no, and, you know, during, during COVID Sharon and I really like became very passionate about that. We, she started working for the WTA's first ever sustainability committee. And she's, she was the first athlete to serve on it and she's still on it. And I've been helping a bit and, um, finding ways that I can, you know, be a voice for change. And then the BLM movement really rocked me to the core. You know, I'd already started ripping my heart open and that just really shook me with how much I was naive and how much I closed myself off to the truth of what's happening and just being a neutral, nice person is not the same as being an aware, good person. And if you're not speaking against injustice, then you are supporting it. And um, it became very important to me to speak up against injustice and speak up for what needs to change in the world and worry less about if it makes people uncomfortable and what they think of me. Because it, at the end of the day, I have to live my truth. And at the end of the day, the way we are living on this planet is not sustainable. We're, we're heading towards some sort of shift or worse. And... I, you know, I have two young nephews. I want to be able to look at them one day. If I have kids, I want to be able to look at them one day. And if things don't go well, I want to say, I don't want them to look at me and say, like, what the hell? Like, mm-hmm. where were you? What did, did you try? Did you with me there? Yeah. And I just, I feel like it's our responsibility. Yeah, you, tried. You, know, I, you go I camping with some friends. Everybody pitches in and cleans up after. Yeah. Why can't we clean up the world after our mess? Everybody yeah. has a voice. Everybody has a role. We all can do something. We're just conditioned and brainwashed into thinking that the individual can't do anything. But really, at the end of the day, these people with the power making the decisions are just individuals too. And I just think, you know, be the change you want to see in the world is a cliche, but it is more important now than ever. And so 
all that to say, I guess I've become a bit of a hippie. Sharon and I have acquired like 45 plants over COVID and we love our <laughs> plants. And Costa Rica was just something that like, it's the, the, the mentality well, and it's net nature. Zero, right? That's what you're explaining to me. It's, it's a net zero. And it's a blue zone. It's one of the spots in the world where people live the longest because they live for the right reasons. And right. that's to be alive and, and live in gratitude as opposed to what else can I acquire? Very interesting. Um, well, it's so, incredible, Dylan. It's incredible you using your your voice, your your voice to to reach and touch on subjects like this, things that you know that really matter. Um, it, it's incredible, and and maybe just segue into a, a quick discussion about your involvement with um, with Elage and with May and Asher and and the FSDIA, um, the Figure Skating uh, Diversity and Inclusion um, initiative you guys have going on. Really incredible. Um, talk a little bit about your involvement with that and why is it important that we have diversity in figure skating? Well, I think, I think it's important that we have diversity everywhere because we are all from the same place. We all come from the same thing. We are all one, you know, it yep. doesn't, this whole notion of race, there's no other races. There's just one race, the human race. And that's not to, that's not to say that we shouldn't see color. I think that identifying our differences and our cultural differences and celebrating them is where we should be headed. And, um, you know, I, as a human being, I possess empathy. We all do, whether we use it or not, or acknowledge it or not, we all are born with the capacity to love and feel compassion. And when everything really started exploding and Asher was, you know, gracious enough and generous enough to have some some enlightening and difficult talks with me, which are not his responsibility. It is everyone's responsibility to educate themselves. But, um, you know, I, I just cracked open more, and I and I I just saw the injustice and the pain and the things that happen in the world. And it's not to say that like everyone who's involved in it is bad it's just there's a lot of a lack of awareness and a lack of accountability because of discomfort and i just wanted to be part of the change i wanted to i wanted to do something and there was various people doing the same thing at the same time and um you know in a serendipitous way uh i kind of reached out to Elijah and said like man i want to do something want to create something maybe a talk show like what can we do and he said well actually this is starting to evolve and we've evolved into the figure skating diversity and inclusion Alliance. Uh, it's comprised of competitive and show skaters from around the world, mostly North America. Um, and one of the biggest gifts it's given me is to understand the skating world in its entirety, not just the competitive world. And there's a whole other world of show skating that you grow up like an elite competitor. You kind of like are taught to look down on it a bit there's all these performers that are, have so much love for the sport and have so, and give so much to the sport. And it's, it's been so enlightening to see how far it reaches and to, to listen to the stories and to the struggles of skaters of color in, in our communities and in Canada, where we pride ourselves on being so inclusive, but we still have a ton of work to do. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I work as a co-chair of the, the PR committee for, um, for the Alliance and it's been a ride. It's been difficult. None of us have done anything like this, but there's a lot of passion. There's a lot of learning and growing. Uh, and, you know, the learning curve is steep in working an organization, but 
there's a lot of people who want to make change and, and have their hearts in the right places. And, um, you know, I'm very honored and grateful to be part of uh, a group with such amazing people. And I know we're excited to see the, you know, quote unquote fruits of the labor that, that you guys put in with this, uh, with this alliance. And I think it's such yeah. an important conversation to have. And, and again, just commending. Kids should be able to look at, look at the TV and, and see someone that represents them. Everyone should be able right. to dream wherever, regardless of what you look like or where you come from. And I think that representation is very important. Well, and I want to commend you. I want to commend you, dude. That's, uh, you know, an admirable approach. And, and uh, you, I, I'll leave it as simply as this. You're, you're one of the good ones, dude. And uh, we need, the world needs more people like you. And um, I'm really excited to, to continue to watch your work um, post skating career and, the bigger and better things that you're moving on to. I think the, the world is a better place for it. And um, yeah, it's like I said, man, you're, you're one of the good ones and, and we need more of you. Um, well, so all the best, with, uh, all the best with the Alliance and uh, Kevin, I don't know if you have any questions left for Dylan. I think we'll get the papers over to uh, get that second <laughs> podcast lined up. You, uh, <laughs> you definitely opened up uh, and you will open up a lot of eyes to kind of the other side of the sport and, and, and even the, the post-competition side of things, you know, your mindset, your meditation, um, being a vegan athlete. I mean, there's so much that we can talk to in that I'm vegetarian myself. And I always tell Mitch when we go to the keg to, you know, put the knife down a couple times, you know, a week and it's okay. <laughs> I'm still trying to put on, I'm still trying to put on weight, but Hey man, watch game, watch game changers. <laughs> yeah, I, I have incredible, actually really incredible movie. You, you don't have to try to convince me of, uh, you know, the, all the reasons, um, things. Oh, no, no, no. But are... even, even if you're just looking at the nutritional side, uh, right. apparently their website has a whole list of nutritional suggestions and recipes. Sharon cooks my food and I'm lost when she travels, but, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of, there are a lot of good and a lot of great restaurants are opening up too. Like yeah. I had a, a comfort, a comfort food barbecue dinner last night of like, chicken and waffles and macaroni and cheese and mashed yeah, that potatoes looked, that looked and it was really all vegan. good man incredible oh, that looked delicious yeah it was pretty it was pretty insane well and uh you uh continue to do your thing as number one supporter on that uh, wta tour um i know um i'm a big fan of sharon's i, I want to wish her uh continued success on the circuit um and uh please please apologize to her with my you know my misquote on your engagement time frame i think COVID has blurred my life so extremely that uh, i don't I think lost. i need to i think she's fine, she's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no but we're excited to see uh when you guys tie the knot and um again we're really pumped to to watch and and learn from you as you continue all these um, post-career endeavors and, and all the best to you, young lad. Thank you, kind sir. It's been a pleasure talking with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was great. Dylan's, I mean, he's, wow. there's not many people better to interview than him. He's perfect. Yeah, I think it's incredible that mental mindset that, I mean, you know, you and I know I'm a big proponent of it, but just to see how he's implemented it on in all aspects of his life and and has made the change post skating yeah is pretty awesome yeah because you said it i mean you you went through it yourself i mean a lot of athletes go through it the struggles of you know i'm done what do i do now kind of thing and yep good good for him and i know i mean just his 
the way it ended, it was extremely difficult for him. And I mean, you can hear it in his voice, yeah. right? So it's kind of kind of cool to hear that, but then also hear how somebody deals with that in the right way. It, it will be exciting to see, you know, where he keeps going through. I mean, dude, the guy was on The Boys on Amazon. You know, he's got IMDb creds. He's traveling the world um, with Sharon. It's like phew, living the dream. Yeah, and and I said it at the you know kind of winding down the episode there. I think the world's a better place um, for guys like Dylan, and um, I truly am you know looking forward to seeing um, what he does in the next few years because obviously an extremely ambitious guy with lots of goals and and you know a heart in the right place. So I think that recipe uh, again, I'm excited to see what uh, comes of his work and. Um, I think we can all learn a little something from Dylan. I think episode two with Dill will for sure be in person when I can come up to Canada. Like that'd be so much fun. Book your plane tickets, man. We're waiting for you. Yeah, fourteen day quarantine, man. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's worth it. Well, you can quarantine in my we'll basement. Some... I got a nice uh, spot under the stairs. Like uh, you could do your Harry Potter thing. Fifty square feet. That's yeah, beautiful. I'll throw throw some. Uh, computers and chairs in there and we'll podcast upstairs downstairs <laughs> i like it Woo. yeah really excited uh really excited for for our listeners to have the chance to hear um dylan speak and just again his insight his outlooks his positivity is you know hope and potential and and opportunity is commendable and admirable and um through and through one of the one of the great guys um in the sport Stay positive, stay optimistic. I mean, if anything, the last couple of people we've talked with, uh, you know, definitely have a sense of optimism with everything that's going on. And it's, you know, easy to find yourself in a, in a hard place right now, but there is a lot to look forward to. And, and to remember that, that there, there's a lot to look forward to outside of this. So, you know, keep, keep on doing what you're doing and, you know, we'll, we'll be okay. Everyone will be okay. So I think on that note, we'll catch you guys next week. I was magic like an addition. I had come to the magic.